Welcome back to Emerge. On this episode, I'm speaking with Gail Bradbrook. Gail is one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion, one of the uh, most exciting political movements happening on the planet that I'm aware of, uh, at least at the moment. And so it's with great pleasure and really an honor uh, to be bringing Gail and sharing uh, her story as well as the larger story and vision of Extinction Rebellion uh, with you. And uh, I think as you'll hear, this is, I think, a, a political movement that intersects with many of the conversations we've been having on this show uh, over the past couple of years. And so I think it's uh, wonderful to see this emerging in the world. Uh, really brings to life some of the conversations that I've had here on Emerge. Um, and so if you'd like to support the podcast, there are two major ways you can do that. The first is by becoming a supporting listener by clicking on the link in the show notes or by going to anchor.fm slash emerge. Uh, there you can make a 99 cent or $5 a month or $10 a month contribution. It helps me uh, pay the various digital costs of creating this as well as uh, it gives me more time to do the research and do the production, uh, reimburses me for that time. The other way you can support the podcast is by leaving a review on iTunes. Uh, those reviews actually really support new listeners encountering this show. Uh, the algorithms in, in, their, <laughs> in their wisdom uh, use those reviews as a way to decide who sees what on the internet. And so it really makes a difference uh, if you want to support the show uh, to leave a quick review on iTunes. It doesn't take much time at all, and it's very appreciated. Okay, I hope you enjoy this episode of Emerge with Gail Bradbrook. Welcome back to Emerge. On this episode of the show, I'm very excited to welcome Gail Bradbrook who is one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion in the United Kingdom. Extinction Rebellion is a group that believes that time has run out to address the ecological crisis. And in the face of this, it's the right and duty of every citizen to rebel and for the government to tell the truth and decarbonize the economy in as short a period of time as possible. And so uh, even from that very brief elevator pitch, listeners can hear how resonant this is with all of the inquiries that we've been going through on this show. And so I, I first encountered the Extinction Rebellion on October 31st, um, and it was very interesting. I, was, I think I was riding on a bus to go f fly to California for an event out in America, and, uh, and you know, well, I'm over here, uh, I'm connected with a number of Europeans through this podcast. And it seemed like all at once, everyone was talking about this event and this organization. And then I read the what's called the Declaration of Rebellion, which was, I believe, released on the same day on October 31st. And I knew in my bones that this was going to be something special. I knew in the same way that I sort of knew when I saw Occupy Wall Street, that this was something that was just like, true and good and appropriate and like just right timing. And since then, um, the extension, Extinction Rebellion seems to be growing, at least from my perspective, more or less exponentially. Uh, in one month since they've begun, um, or at least since they've launched, they've shut down more or less the city of London through direct action, um, performed, uh, I can't even keep track, it's seemingly innumerable direct actions within London and, and uh, throughout the UK, and getting lots of coverage in major news outlets like The Guardian and the BBC. And uh, just to, you know, kind of, I think it's just so important to keep presencing this as we do so often on the show. And, and you know, it's, it, we can't uh, give a big picture, but, you know, a, a, a recent New York Times article I, I saw called the, uh, uh, the Insect Apocalypse uh, you know, scientists recently found the population of monarch butterflies fell by 90% in the last 20 years. That's a loss of 900 million individuals. 
Um, and so, you know, just that's another piece just to bring us into the presence of the reality of the Anthropocene and this mass extinction that we're going through. And so um, really happy to have Gail here to kind of share with us what is happening with the Extinction Rebellion. And, and before we launch into the conversation, it's important to say, uh, and I recall saying things like this with uh, Occupy Wall Street, that Gail is not here to speak as Extinction Rebellion or for Extinction Rebellion. She's here to speak on behalf of herself um, as an individual. And so, uh, Gail, welcome to Emerge. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great. And so, um, I guess the first question uh, we wanted to start off with is just like, how did you come to be involved with Extinction Rebellion? Can you tell us a little bit that story? So I guess I've been interested in social change for many years. Uh, it feels like since I was a little girl, if I'm honest, I've uh, got interested in animal rights. As a young one, uh, I guess it was a, a feeling of a deep feeling that something was wrong in the world and somehow that can get a bit tied up in knots as well as you grow up and you have to figure some of that out. Around 2008, uh, birth of my second child, something strong was emerging in me in wanting to contribute. And uh, in 2010, I was involved in the tax justice movement and spotting mm. the deep inequality in the world. I did a lot of research around economics and so on. And, and uh, it was clear to me that mass civil disobedience was appropriate. And what I would say, I suppose, is that I failed a lot. I tried mm. a lot of different things and they didn't work. I uh, read a lot of books. Mm. I went on various trainings. And um, eventually, I was part of Occupy Democracy, which was the thing that happened af after Occupy and so on. I've read Mika White's book. I've read um, mm -hmm. This Is an Uprising, you know, lots of things. And I think I got to a stage, actually, uh, I mean, before some of that reading, where I was just feeling a little bit, uh, I don't know if desperate is quite the right word, but recognizing that there was something not right in me that I was bringing to the table. And I think that's really mm. important. You know, activism to me is something that's internal as well as external. Mm. And, and also uh, I, I didn't think I had all the right information and I didn't think I had all the right people around me. <laughs> Apart from that, everything was going fine. Um, and so I went to do a retreat. Uh, I went to pray. Uh, I, I, although I have a background in science, I have a, a, a pagan leaning. I don't know if I fully own that title. I always feel a little bit at odds with any of any of these things. But I, 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 um, I do sort of sit with ceremony and, and, and things like that. And I, it got to a stage where I felt a need to go and and really call to the universe, if you like, for for help. Mm. And uh, as a as a somebody with some environmental leanings I, I don't take flying that lightly i know it's a little bit more common in the states but um i did fly to to costa rica and carbon tax myself before anybody criticizes me for it but with, with a donation to tree sisters and i went to do um a big a big retreat there working with iboga uh, and ayahuasca and it's quite an interesting story if you want me to tell it what happened yes, please i'd love to hear it so so I guess the Iboga, so the Iboga was, so it was with New Life, Ayahuasca New Life, Iboga, uh, a retreat centre I really recommend. Um, the Iboga was a flood dose and that was to look at some internal issues around, um, I suppose addiction wasn't running my life at that stage, but it, it was there in the background, um, busyness, not feeling quite right, anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, and the journey with the boga was just incredible. And to cut a long story short there, it rewired my brain. Um, what an incredible uh, plant medicine. And then with the ayahuasca, I guess it was more of a, an external prayer. And I, I, was, I was frankly crapping myself taking that level mm -hmm. of psychedelic medicine. Uh, so I'd been listening to a lot of Terence McKenna podcasts and trying to figure out how to cope with it and getting some good advice from Terence from beyond the grave. Uh, I yeah. did feel like he visited me actually in the aboga. That's probably because I've been thinking about him so much. And um, mm. he was talking about the codes in the higher consciousness. 
And I have no idea, really, but I was sort of thinking, well, surely there must be some codes for social change. You know, how are we supposed to go about this thing? What does it look like? What are the codes for social change? So that was very specifically my prayer with the ayahuasca. Uh, who's in my team? Can I meet more people? What do I need to be doing with my time? I'm here in service and so on. And then I came back mm-hmm. to the UK and I tried to launch a mass tax disobedience, made mm-hmm. a little short video uh, that was another flop. I mean, it sort of went semi-viral, but it didn't really work. Um, but another another valiant attempt, I think. And But off the back of trying that, Roger Hallam contacted me, who's a researcher at King's College, and I guess another fellow nerd, um, mm. it, it, interested in, in concepts and how things work and so on. And we had, he invited me to a meeting and we met and it ended up being a four hour meeting. He, he, he said he had a headache at the end of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was a real meeting of minds and a sharing of information and what we understood. Um, so he was doing research at that time in what he was calling conditional commitment, which is I'll do something if you'll do it. And so he'd managed to help organise a successful rent strike at University College London, which was the first successful rent strike in ages. And so he was interested in this conditional commitment idea. And I'd actually set up a platform mm-hmm. uh, to, to host conditional commitments. And so he was sharing a lot of his data. It was a real nerd off graphs and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, data, here's how not to do something. Well, you're getting this right, Gail, but you should think about this. And so it went on and we shared ideas about what we wanted to do and how committed we were to social change and all the rest of it. And then at the end of this four-hour period, I just because you know, Roger, I, I can't believe this meeting. It's exactly everything that I needed to know. And he, he leaned over and he tapped my notepad and he said, basically, Gail, what I've just given you here are the codes for social change. Mm. So, he, he, you know, he actually used the phrase of the prayer. And I realized afterwards I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have realized that it was the delivery of the prayer. It's like the grandmother ayahuasca had to tap me on the shoulder and go, by the way, Gail, just pay attention. I did actually deliver on that request. Mm. Uh, so then, so then we, um, we started uh, trying to set up an organisation called, we ended up being called Rising Up. There was uh, Roger in particular organised a lot of meetings with activists. I think I'd been trying to work with kind of relatively grassroots NGOs and that's not the right place. So we mm. had activists from Earth First, from Occupy, from Plain Stupid in the UK, from Reclaim the Power in lots of different meetings and Roger presented his ideas around strategies and um, we, we wrote a strategy together as a group and, and that's what got things going. Cool. And, and, you know, um, I think now there's a lot of information on the internet about what Extinction Rebellion is. And there's a lot of now news coverage, which I'm extremely pleased to see about what it is. And I'm curious for you, Gail, like, what does it, what does it mean to you? Um, I mean, what it means to me personally is the realization of a dream. You know, it's uh, the 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 idea to try and start a social movement, and obviously, who knows what's going to happen. There's a really, really dedicated team of people who want to make this work, and we know that we've got to change how we're doing things now. It's gone from a small team to huge. Uh, it feels a bit mm. like I've given birth, uh, and I don't mean it's just mm. me personally. I, hopefully, I'm saying this with some humility. You know, I mean. Uh, it, it was an incredible period uh, focused on, on on getting this thing moving. Uh, and at the same time, it's a period of such utter grief because, you, you know, I was in court in January. I'd been arrested at a frack site in Lancashire just as part of a contribution towards the anti-fracking movement in the UK. And so I'd done a lot of research with Polly Higgins's team from Mission Life Force about getting a, a defence together. And I'd, you know, done lots of research about the state of the ecosystem and ecocides and so on. But I realised that I hadn't really faced what we're dealing with. I, th- I just thought I had. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that I suspect that a lot of campaigners and environmentalists, I suspect that a lot of us do it from our intellect rather than from our heart, even yeah. though the heart's obviously going to come into it sometimes. So what it also yeah. means for me is um, a lot of, a lot of grief, you know, so it's a, it's a kind of time in my life. And also, you know, it's like being told that your kids are going to die soon or something, you know, something really painful yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. And that's what, that's one of the things that like leapt out at me. And I, I don't even know if it was anything I saw or anything that was like said in words when I was reading about Extinction Rebellion, but was, it felt like it was arising out of somewhere that acknowledges the grief and wasn't purely intellectual, but instead was like deeply human and even more than human in the way that I don't know. I, I, and, and now I've, I've subsequently like seen some of the kind of events around it that affirm that, but I could just tell that it was coming from a different place. And, and uh, it's really, really striking. It has a completely different vibe than I feel like I've ever seen before with this sort of thing. Um, and uh, so, it, it, you know, to what degree was this kind of meeting of trauma and grief an intentionally placed ingredient in Extinction Rebellion? And to what degree did it arise emergently? And yeah, can you tell me a little bit more about that whole piece? I'm curious. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it's a mixture. I mean, the declaration itself was drafted by uh, Simon Bramwell, who's uh, also my boyfriend and has a, a, a deep spiritual basis to his practice as well. I wouldn't say everybody in Extinction Rebellion does, and we want to be really inclusive in how we present ourselves so that, you know, if you're a hardened atheist or even not hardened, you know, not so atheists are quite spiritual in my view, but anyway, that you feel that you can be part of that. There, there was, um, there was an acknowledgement, um, of, I mean, the, the way we sort of say it is we're fucked <laughs> for a British way of saying things. In fact, we did a banner drop with, we're fucked, you know, and it, 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 so, so that was already in the room and that the acknowledgement that there was, uh, the, the innovation came from Roger that it was time to tell the truth and ask people to act as if the truth was real. And he got together a talk. And I think when, as I did the research for the talk, he, he had a very uh, spiritual leaning in that anyway, in terms of saying this is really painful to hear. Uh, and as I as I read it, it and, and thought about redrafting it, I thought I felt that the science needed tightening up and so on. I wanted to bring people in like Stephen Jenkinson, because again, a little bit coming from Simon, uh, the, the, talking about being a worthy ancestor. You know, there's something that shifted in me in the process of preparing for Extinction Rebellion that was about. Um, you know, I think I was being quite self-righteous, actually. I was being, you know, doing that activist, put activism at the centre of my life. You can be really um, up your own arse about it in a way, can't you? Look at me, I'm, I'm I'm, cool, I'm doing this stuff, you're not doing enough, and all that business. And after a bit, it's like, whoa, 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 hang about. This is not about me. This is not about anybody. This is about life on Earth, and it's dying. And what does it mean to be an alive human being? I mean, it, that, that, my... I think what shifted for me when I really let the grief in and expressed it and did some processing, some more processing around it, it's not like I've never processed grief about the earth, but uh, did the next phase of that was a feeling of wanting to be a worthy ancestor, a feeling of wanting to get me out of the way and mm. um, and real need for community, a real need to have that be held and, and, and met by other people. Otherwise, a slight feeling of going bonkers, you know. Um, and, and what, what, um, what's your sense or what's your experience of what encountering and, and sort of either, I don't know how you want to frame it, working through experiencing that grief and that trauma, what does that open up is for us as activists or people? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've written an article that's this is yet to be published. I, I think the Guardian might do it, but anyway, it's called "Grief, Love, and Data: The Foundations of a New Social Movement." And uh, well, you know, but a, a, a new friend, Kofi, is saying it's more trauma. Actually, I mean, we're, we're traumatized about what we're doing, I think, and how we've been living. And it's kind of like, I, I suppose, being a privileged white Westerner it means there's also a lot of comfort on on offer isn't there is there's a way to to deal with that and mm-hmm. even the kind of um let's call it the ngo therapy industrial complex or something there's a place where you can get all into doing your nature connection retreat and going off and doing this that and the other and even with all of that it can be a it can be a holding pattern uh 
And I think I think Stephen just says it really well that if you want to focus on feeling well, don't focus on these times because it's not consistent. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean you can't have fun and, and and so on, but you know, grief is is and trauma is part of it if you let that to the surface. So I had this other ex- interesting experience. I actually, help host a, a moon circle for women. We meet with a full moon, um, a little bit based in the red path tradition, but separated from that. And uh, so we have a a tp that we use and i hope people don't feel we've appropriated anything it there has been a lineage and a, and, and a gifting of a design but anyway um the uh i was feeling really at odds with my community in stroud we're our we're a transition town if that means something to you we think about changing the economy we're a uh anthroposophical community lots of rudolf steiner type of schools and health things here and so on and so it's quite a forward-thinking town, and I was just feeling at odds with most of the people in my community, not not understanding what I was planning, um, also feeling quite frustrated at people who, in principle, care about the earth but aren't willing to go and stand outside a frack site and risk being arrested and so on. So it's been a bit of an ongoing feeling. So I, I took some uh, – there's a plant in the UK that – the apparently the Celts would have prayed with called mugwort. It's from the Artemisia family and went and had a, a, a meeting with some of the young women from Extinction Rebellion and we uh, to, to just host some prayers and, and do some bonding in this teepee anyway. But I put up a prayer actually for support from my community. I was feeling really quite frustrated and it was incredible. Two days later, my friend Skeena Rathor came back, um, texted me to say, Gail, we've got to meet. Um, I've just been with Jen Bendel who you probably know wrote the deep adaptation paper. And she'd been in this uh, conference in Cumbria University, jointly hosted by GEMS uh, people and some some folks, some German folks. And she said, I've never been to anything like it, Gail. People in tears, grown men, professors in suits crying. Uh, the latest mm. climate science was presented. It completely opened her eyes. Again, another person who would have thought they were on top of this stuff. And also they were presenting um, some, I don't think they were presenting data, but they were talking about data and, and some of the feedback from scientists in the Arctic at the minute who were talking about the possible build-up of an El Nino event over the Arctic mm-hmm. that could re- could result in a collapse in the food systems in three years' time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So she came back in incredible shock, but it was also a real gift uh, to me because she started going around my community going why are we not listening to Gail and uh, and then suddenly everything shifted in Stroud and Stroud actually Stroud District Council's now I mean in that sh- this I'm talking about early September right Stroud District mm. Council last two weeks has just announced itself um, as th- that we're in a climate crisis and that came off the back of a whole pile of activism that's just emerged in Stroud Stroud's just suddenly changed it's really quite incredible mm. there's an ongoing occupation so there's something about the foundational work that people have done, I think, but also the shock that says actually climate change is not something that's happening to somebody else somewhere else at another time. You yes. know, and we all feel bad about that, but we're not really that bothered because it's not in our face and it's not about our kids. And I can just own that as much as anybody else. Um, I do care about climate justice, but you know, there's also that thing of what's 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 most in your heart is is your own children's future and so on so this shift happened this shift happened and yeah what i was going to say is um i think it's the shift in consciousness i think it could be the you know there's this idea if you read i think it's wonderful you know people like charles eisenstein and so on this is a sort of sense of this long arc of progress where people find their way they find their they find their place in the world and they contribute to this change process and but there's a place where that's just not fast enough and mm-hmm. so on and not to make everybody feel urgent there's something about facing this grief that feels like it kickstarts you into the if you interest in spiral dynamics that Ken Wilber talks about theory of everything mm. that kind of stuff it feels like it this has been my experience and what I feel like I'm watching others doing, moving into Teal, in terms of, you know, what Ken says, the, 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 the issue for the progressive left, the green progressive left, is narcissism. It's all about mm. us, you know. We're in a consumer con- culture and it feels at least it's done part of a job of kicking me out of that and I can see that in others. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think um, I feel that too. And it does seem like there's some kind of um, shift in the foundations of our collective consciousness right now. And it's so hard to know, you know, because I pay attention to the sources of information that I pay attention to. But even in my peer groups, people who don't know about Extinction Rebellion, people who are kind of less plugged in than I am, seem to be newly comprehending the potentiality of collapse and extinction and crisis. And for me, I've noticed that really, and, and you know, this part of the reason I did this podcast is like to force myself to uh, take these issues seriously. Um, but to, to really reckon with these possibilities almost necessarily reorients your life. And I guess I'm, I'm curious, like you're, you're in a position where you're kind of holding space for that to happen on a massive scale. Um, and it's hard even sometimes with my friends to, to, to sort of bring it up and to have them and to interact around this. Like there's just a lot there. And I'm curious, like what, what do, do you have any perspective on like how to approach these, this topic in a way that um, gives you a greater likelihood to break through perhaps into a sort of teal consciousness or teal um, orientation versus a kind of breakdown? Because I notice myself, I oscillate. Like sometimes I give up hope and then sometimes it's inspiring and kind of lights a fire under my butt. Um, what's your, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I, I like Derek Jensen talks about hopium. You know, there's something there's something about hope that kind of it's just it's a bit vague, isn't it? That you're you just hope something's going to be okay. I, I suppose Joanna Macy brought forward the idea of active hope, the hope hope that comes mm. through doing things. One of the things we've talked about in Extinction Rebellion is uh, virtue ethics, is doing the right thing. With, because one of the kind of pressures of neoliberalism, I guess, is to do things because it's going to get you something. You know, mm -hmm. it's the sort of opposite of community, isn't it? And, and the gift economy is to just do this and you might get that thing. And whilst there is some really um, strong theories of change in what we're doing and we're using momentum-driven organising, we've been learning from people in the States, people like uh, Carlos Saavedra from INE Institute trained some of us and so on. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, beyond that, we're just saying let's not be too attached to the outcome and let's just feel like this is the right thing to be doing and let's see because who knows what humanity can come up with. And then and then to go back to your <clears throat> original point about how you have these conversations because it can feel really quite alienating being around friends that are in the other world where they're not thinking about that stuff. I, I do find that hard these days. and I've just started to name it. I've just started to say to friends I feel a bit alienated <laughs> and mm. see what see what they make of that a good mm. a good friend of mine advised me if in terms of talking about climate change or anything that's difficult to talk about talking about it with people so to say to people if we were going to have a conversation about climate change ecological crisis you know the risk of human extinction what what would that be like for you just having that conversation so don't launch into having it ask them and and see see where it sits for them because they may say, well, I'll be really frightened or I don't want to think about it or I'm worried, you know, then let's, then th that makes the room to see whether the conversation's going to happen or not. I think, I think one of the things I've had to deal with myself around is I was calling her my inner teenager who wants to tell people off and wants to tell everybody what to do. <laughs> it was getting, mm. she was getting in the way. Um, I sort of mm. need to get her to step back and <laughs> go and play in the woods or something. And, um, yeah, just actually be respectful of, of of people's right to consent in terms of conversations and so on. Not that I've been forcing this down anybody's throat either, but you know what, you can be quite – when something's on your mind, you're slipping it in the conversation, aren't you? Just I think just to own it a bit more, like I really feel like I want to talk to this – to you about this it's it's feeling like a barrier in our relationship that we're not having a conversation about this it is is one thing yeah 
and then I guess you, you, you also, sorry, mentioned the whole thing of opening up this space and holding it. And what's just been incredible is because I think a lot of people have been waiting for this moment to come is that people are coming with their gifts and their skills. And so you've got somebody like Gayano Shaw, who's set up something called uh, broken hearted, the skill of broken heartedness in the mm. wake of the XR declaration and has been uh, offering online support. And I would just, you know, one of the things we, that's absolutely the case with Extinction Rebellion is if you agree with our principles and values, and there's 10 of them and they're mentioned online, it's things like nonviolence and regenerative culture and so on. Uh, mm. And you want to start something in the name of Extinction Rebellion that you just literally need no permission, you just totally feel free. Uh, and so if, mm. if people want to, st- to start um, sharing circles that they feel uh, is needed in the in the wake of that or the space that's been opened up and the space that's been opened up because of the IPCC and the U, what the UN said this summer and the wildfires and the floods I mean it's not obviously just Extinction Rebellion I think we've hit a bit of a zeitgeist mm-hmm. yeah and so uh, one other piece of this is kind of related that I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on is um, I struggle and I notice a lot of people in this space struggle with this kind of um, movement between a sense of profound urgency and the kind of acknowledgement that life will take its time to, to unfold this process, right? Like we're kind of here in service of life. Um, and so I don't know, there's this kind of like uh, space between not, not, not rushing and not hesitating um, that seems like you are, or Extinction Rebellion is doing a very good job of occupying. Uh, and it's hard in my world to do that as an individual. And I'm curious, like what, what, what it's like to attempt to kind of create that context of relaxed urgency, almost it seems in, a, in even a movement, like where there's space, where there's space for emotional healing and yet, you know, the world is on fire. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I, I I think that sometimes people come to me who know me and say, girl, I want to get involved. And I can hear that edge of panic in them that, that, that they need to feel like they're doing something to feel better. And I say, well, you know, maybe you need to go and, and get some support with how you're feeling about it, you know, as a first thing, because I do think that the deeper commitment to this process comes from, from love you know and love is the grief is the price of love Mm. you know so um again it's what charles eisenstein talks about in his new book climate a new story you know we're going to protect the earth when we love her so i i don't know whether it's fast or slow i think that's the indication that's an indication for me about where i'm at with the movement at any one time is is am i in my heart or not or am i getting all (laughs) it's like okay gail maybe you need to Mm. i can take a few hours off or something or go and go for a walk or reconnect with something so I do uh, love uh, that quote organize at the speed of trust I think that came out of Black Lives Matters and I you know I think people mm. it's useful if people organize in their communities and I, I this has not been um, sort of signed off internally yet but I made a recent proposal that we think of the unfolding of this movement as two potential paths. Uh, One is the one that we're more uh, openly organising towards at the minute, which is the idea of rebellion, um, declaring yourself in rebellion with your government, uh, breaking the social contract in that way and committing acts of civil disobedience to create a, a political crisis. And then the idea would be that you, you you know you'd be in the room with the government. We do already have a political team waiting for that moment. That's been something you can learn from other social movements through James Sharp or Tim G's writings. Mm. That that people don't always get ready for that moment. They, they don't plan for success. <coughs> Excuse me. So uh, there's that path that's sort of the more traditional political path, and um, that would be really welcome, obviously, because uh, we need to move. We do need to be making shifts ASAP in terms of policies and so on. But I guess for me, the the second path that I see, and both can happen, right, but is um, that collapse will come. People like Jen Bendel do talk about it being inevitable. It seems to be, um, who knows, but, you know, it, that, it, that is the precedent for civilizations is that they collapse rather than sustain themselves. So I I guess the other piece I feel like is, 
by having a, a network of awake people focused on building community and building their own sense of agency uh, at a local level, that that's that's what's needed. It's not somebody else's job, you know, that's food. Uh, you know, like if you take this transition movement, which I was strongly involved with for four years, and we got things like edible stroud off the ground with planted trees, with f- the, f- the gr- mm. food trees and so on. <clears throat> I feel like a lot of that was... <clears throat> excuse me sorry i feel like a lot of things that we might have done in the past were like children playing at something to prepare ourselves mm. i kind of feel like we've got to grow up now and it's not playground anymore it's it's sort of shit or bust um time. Mm. so i don't know if that really answers your question about speed but the point is that I, if it's not done from love and community i just don't think it's going to sustain itself I mean, there is an internal energy within Extinction Rebellion and Rising Up <clears throat> that's very forward and probably in the sort of masculine, if you like, and then there's a feminine that kind of tries to make sure that the building blocks are in place and there's always that kind of tension inside that's it, – its best is a really creative tension. You know, when is it time to breathe and push and when is it time to, to exhale and settle and uh, inhale and, and relax and so on? Um, and I think that's something we have to constantly balance. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for speaking to that. I think it's, um, yeah. Move, organizing at the speed of trust is beautiful. Um, even though sometimes the speed of trust, I think is slower than our minds might want and our, our sense of urgency might desire, but, um, things tend to fall apart if you try to go faster than that. Like I, I saw that at Occupy, like we kind of tried to grow too quickly. We tried to do too many things too quickly. And the, the sort of trust between the people broke down. And, you know, that's something I, I'd love to hear you reflect on is, is it seems, it seemed like my experience at Occupy was there was this really beautiful core of people who got together to, to launch it. And they had built trust together Um uh, through hardship and through lots of uh, work together. Um, and then more people started coming on, more people were called forth. And the system, uh, the kind of social network couldn't hold in the same way. And, and trust started to break down at some point. Um, and there's lots of reasons for that, from agent provocateurs to police violence and you know reasons. But I'm curious like what your thoughts are and how to preserve trustworthy relationships as the movement at least from my perspective seems to be growing like exponentially yeah i you know i'd really love to uh have a conversation with some occupiers about that experience because that's the first time i've heard it expressed as a as a thing that occupy experienced i mean you sort of read the notes about why occupy didn't work as maybe because it only had one tactic or whatever you hear different things but i think it would be incredibly useful for some of our core team to to hear about that um so yeah i'd welcome that I, we are in a it, it is a a relatively difficult time right now i mean that in the in, in social change theories i understand that you call it a moment of the whirlwind that's what carlos Saavedra mm. told us so we've had this big whoosh and um to my mind we need to really accept that there's a slump in energy afterwards people are really tired uh there's a lot of people that you know there's some critiques out there some of them are, 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 are totally reasonable some of them are probably got some good information in them but they come across quite aggressively and there's a lot coming at us as a group mm-hmm. and uh we 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 were 15 of us in a room in may planning this thing so you know there's now thousands of people wanting to help organize never mind just be involved you know um and we know that if we're going to take up erica chenoweth's data we need about 3.4% of the population. There's about 2 million people in the UK for the shift. There's groups mm. getting going across the world. And, the, the, you know, the, there are different levels of skills in terms of building that trust. And it's a, it's a bit of an ongoing dialogue at the minute to get us to slow down. I, I heard a decision got made unmade today, which I'm really glad about on that basis, actually, of, 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 of the push uh, where actually we need to, uh, keep reconnecting as a team and um, <clears throat> it's it's difficult because when because we started off as a 
what do you call it, a, di- um, a, a dictatorship of the most willing, mm. uh, I think it, it gets called. You know, whoever's doing things is just because they were the ones willing to work for free and just, you know, <laughs> try this crazy idea yeah, out. Right. And, 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 and mm. now there's just a, a lot of people want to get involved. Um, money's coming through the crowdfunder. Uh, in principle, we could just expand really quickly. And it does feel to me a mistake if we don't really think about what form we want to have going forwards. And I guess on that basis, I'd refer to Adrienne Mary Brown's book, Emergent Strategy, about mm. <clears throat> what what fractal are we creating right now? You know, what does that look like? What What's the basis of that? So we have a meeting in Stroud tomorrow to talk about decentralization. And if, if people on this listening to this podcast are part of Extinction Rebellion or want to be uh, exciting news, or I'm excited about it, is that um, Mickey Kashtan is uh, giving us some group coaching that people can join. Mm. Uh, that's going to be starting on the 14th of December. Uh, do you know Mickey? Uh, I, I don't, I, I don't no. know. Oh, she's like some super uber cool facilitator, uh, mm. groundbreaking thing, because she's written about Occupy and uh, she mm. uh, knows a lot about c- decentralizing. And, and it, it, it feels like a de-schooling of our brains that are needed. So, I mean, I, 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 you know, I wasn't in Occupy to know, but be really interested to know how that, how that was um, mm-hmm. in terms of, because, you know, Occupy Stroud got off the ground. There was occupations everywhere, weren't there, or people using that name. And then it, it kind of fizzled out. You know, I don't know what that, that was exactly about, but it feels like mm-hmm. how, how, how do you support the DNA or the fractal to have a good shape without telling people what to do? You know, it's, it's, people have to be self organized yeah. don't they? So, yeah. Well, I mean, even that hearing that you know about like uh, sort of spiral dynamics and and uh, I, I think I saw on at least the rising up Google Doc, I saw that you're 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 using some kind of holocratic structures. Um, uh, is that is that right? Am I, I mean, we, we're using holocracy in the sense of. Um, you know, if if somebody's in charge of something, they're, they're asked to get advice and feedback from a few people before they make a decision. But we haven't embedded a full yeah. holocracy. We've we just had a, a, a an totally. analyst advice from somebody called Nick Osborne recently about how we might go about that. But we're also trying to look at other systems because it feels, you know, it feel, cool. it's just finding the right model really um, for us. But. Yeah. Well. I, yeah. I mean, I would say that that, that there's the fact that you're not trying to do this through consensus, which I think hopefully we've all learned by now, you know, isn't a scalable decision-making technology. Uh, just for instance, uh, it says to me that this is emerging out of a, of a kind of different sensibility. And, and it's interesting, you know, you framed it as perhaps just a, a clear acknowledgement of the possibility and probability of extinction kind of ups the ante a little bit and makes us put on a kind of I would almost say like f- feel more be more ad- ad- adult about it like that they're and and uh I think you know uh one thing that I remember at Occupy or my sense was that what happened at Occupy part of what happened now there's so much that happened but that was that uh people were too willing to give away their power like the people that actually started it they were too quickly to say oh we're leaderless oh there's okay. you know nobody is any better or different than anybody else, but like, no, they're actually natural hierarchies that would have been, would have well served the movement, I think, to have been maintained, right? It was, and, and that's the kind of, I think, you know, in spiral dynamics term, this kind of uh, uh, postmodern move where it's just a kind of flattening and desire to include everybody um, instead of making sometimes hard but necessary decisions around uh, these sorts of questions uh and it sounds like you you are positioning uh or, or extinction rebellion is positioning itself as as it to not fall into those traps which is very exciting so, to hear so i mean so that's what we're focused on at the minute obviously wanting to support groups that want to get off the ground and uh share information about what we've done so far and that kind of thing and keeping keep keeping actions going where people want to take action not not wanting to squash energy in that way but 
very much for me reviewing what we've done and um, restructuring and moving in the direction of decentralization. I, I don't know enough to, to comment to in a, in a detailed way on it, but what I think I've understood so far is that, yeah, that emergence of, of hierarchy so that you'd have lots of people in lots of different teams, like you might have a legal team or a training team or a, a media team or whatever, you know, and from within that, there'll be within networks of networks and that mm -hmm. let's say we want to say there's going to be a strategy day or there's going to be an action when what date should it be what 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 format should it take that needs to take intelligence from the system and i guess the people that will do the thinking you know will do their better thinking when they've got like the hive mind behind them but are still empowered to make the decision at the end of the day uh, mm. so it, it I, I think what we're doing at the minute is moving in the direction of dissolving the coordination team, but into a few other groups and bringing some other people in there for the time being. So that's still a bit, you know, top down, but it's um, to just try and we've, we've ended up with too many of us in one meeting that just never works that well. Uh, and yeah, so what, what, what makes me really excited, uh, Daniel is if we figure this out, if we figure out how do you actually have a genuine system where the power is decentralized in a really good way, the decisions are made by the right people in the right way, you know, and I'm sure there'll be fuck ups, of course, but you know, that even if there is, the system learns from it and improves. Uh, talking to Mickey about that. And also we've got a team of potential advisors. Um, like I think Frederick Lalou's been willing to offer advice specific questions and I, th I think adrienne's been asked and, and other people like that uh, but boy do you know tangent but i do feel like the universe is looking after me and i was thinking i looked at this amazing team of advisors i gave a talk in stroud and i've been thinking feels like we're missing somebody who's probably worked more closely with industry you know in industry and blow me this professor from ucl comes up shoves a card in its in my hand and that's what he does he's like <laughs> it was just like wowzers you know um Anyway, uh, there's this team of advisors. I think it's going to take a bit of time because we need to take feedback from uh, – we're going to be putting a questionnaire out uh, probably within the week asking for what people think. And I think we'll do quite poorly on it, actually. I think people will say, yeah, you're not transparent enough. We, we don't know what you're planning and so on. And that, then it'll be a benchmark to improve from. Uh, but what I was going to say is when you think about – that system, how it could be, how it needs to be, how I think it's it's going to have to be to really hold something. Um, it, power is overwhelm. You know, if I've got too much power, I've got to, at the minute I've got six hundred messages a day coming at me or something. I can't deal with it. It's it's too much. So that's clearly incorrect. It clearly needs to change. But equally agreeing with you, don't want to just hand over half my job to somebody else without feeling really solid about what what they can do and. Um, so we're having this conversation about a system of mandates and roles and so on. So it's clear. And then there's a system for what, how the mandates get handed out. And that's based on a system that they use in Budderfield, a, a Buddhist festival organization in the UK. So we're going to be talking to those tomorrow. So I think it's going to take some time to find the right system. But what I keep meaning to say is it feels very prefigurative of what a future society should be organized around. Uh, I spoke to Stephen Reed about it from the Psychedelic Society, and he was, you know, just to ask what technologies are out there that we might use. And um, he was saying that there's blockchain technologies, I think they're called DAOs, De Decentralized Autonomous Organizing. You might know more about it, but um, this, I think they're still a little bit in beta testing, but where you might get uh, like a sort of cryptocurrency embedded in, in what you're doing. And I just think, wow, I can – this – you know, this is me being a bit of a dreamer. Um, and But I think if we as a movement work this out and work out how to move in that direction, work out how to sort our shit out that gets in the way, you know, I'd love most of us to be having some therapy while we're doing this, you know, having some kind of way to look at what shadows are coming up for us in the process where, you know, it, sorry. Um, sorry, I thought I had that off. Um, if, if we could uh, figure that out. Um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I yeah, I think I think it would be incredible. So yeah, it's it's probably the thing that most excites me at the minute.
yeah, that's extremely exciting that your heads, uh, I, I didn't know that that was already a kind of a vision, part of your vision. Um, you know, I, I, we, as part of the show, we've been following the emergence of these distributed autonomous organizations or self-organizing collective intelligences or however you want to frame it. But, you know, yeah, it seems like the, the actual technology is just kind of infant stage getting birthed into the world. And what I was curious about was where would the sort of social relational space be that could hold a big enough purpose that you could apply these technologies into that could actually organize masses of humans on behalf of a more beautiful future. And, you know, I look around the world today, it seems like it's Extinction Rebellion, you know, like y'all are holding an incredible and potential space to leverage these sorts of system architectures to allow hopefully millions of humans to do what they know in their hearts is right, but because they have to participate in systems that um, don't allow them to participate or to, to, to be in alignment with that understanding, uh, you just open up a whole new octave of, of participation, perhaps. Yeah, and totally. And, and do you know what? <clears throat> don't wait for the UK folks to sort this out. You know, if there's some like clever people uh, in, in your networks, just go for it. You know, I mean, this is what we've done with Extinction Rebellion is to say tell the truth um and let's act accordingly name that civil disobedience is needed at this time and we've got um some principles and values right and that that's kind of all you need to be part of extinction rebellion otherwise maybe you're doing something else and that's cool you know but uh if if you're if you're in for that and you're based in i don't know san diego or whatever and you what you you know about decentralized autonomous organizing or whatever and you want to organize in san diego on that basis like totally go for it because what we've got to do is stop you know we shouldn't be waiting for me to and, and whoever i'm working with to figure it out let's have this experiment running across the world um and you know i think the more that people can figure out taking actions on behalf of a vision that they hold for the world's going forwards the the better this is going to be I think that's something Mickey was reminding me on a call recently. I think it's probably in, this is the nerd in me. <laughs> I, think, I think it's probably in um, the Engler's book, This Is Not Rising. But, you know, when you when you make your action the thing that you're longing for, it has a different quality. So people probably saw that we shut down the bridges in London. Uh, or maybe you can, you know, check that out. And that was really awesome. We left, we left two open because we'd liaise with the emergency services and that's what we understood would keep uh, people as safe as possible and so that's cool isn't it you know part of the longing is that this mm. system has to stop so you're you're making that a, a reality and 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 what does it mean when people you know it's incredible time because people were just uh so totally open to getting arrested and so the police have i mean they could have done things they could have, i think we sold our water cannons but i guess they could have got the tear gas out but even there that would have looked so terrible uh, that I guess more people would have been outraged and join us. I mean, that's what often happens in movements when people are treated in a repressive way. So you set it up. I think it's called a dilemma action. Either way, you you know, you're willing to be arrested. And so one of the bridges in particular in London, they kept arresting people on it. Uh, mm-hmm. And we kept sending people from the Westminster Bridge. Um, uh, so people get showing up, and at some point the police just couldn't cope with it anymore, and they go, you know, because well, we we can't mm. do it anymore. And so we were chanting on the Westminster Bridge, and this is how we win. This is how we win. You know, because it's like at some point the system's overwhelmed. It's not by that many of us. That's what's really awesome when people people get quite. Uh, when you're talking about climate, any any kind of issue really. They, in in the UK, they talk about the Daily Mail readers. You know, the people who are reading maybe slightly right wing tabloids and think that well, they're never going to start caring about homeless people or whatever. Mm. And in and, and you know, it's not like all Daily Mail readers are bad, by the way. But um, the point I also make to people: if you've got real personal agency here, if you're willing to cross that line, and to me, that's an initiatory process to to be an ordinary person but saying actually i'm done with this system so why am i willing to be so obedient Mm -hmm. to it you know it's an initiation i think it's breaking the spell of the consumerism on some level i think it's part of that consciousness shift um so you know when people 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 doing that it then then overwhelms the system so i i mean that came out of me talking about 
doing visionary things. So I, I went off on a bit of a tangent to tell you about the Lambeth Bridge and um, I'll maybe finish on a slightly funny story about that with with something else. But uh, using the made-up San Diego example, um, mm-hmm. what pe- what people could do is is organise around the, this this decentralised structure and start to bring out, you know, what we did on one of the bridges. We held a citizens' assembly right in, the, well, a people's assembly right in the middle of the bridge. So we did the mm. democracy that we want to see on the bridge, and then we went back to what's called Parliament Square, which is in front of our houses of Parliament. And there was a, a closing ceremony, an interfaith closing ceremony, and then these trees were brought, brought in and the crowd realised that we were going to be planting the trees in Parliament Square, which is a massive no-no. And the kind of, there was this, I could feel it in the crowd, this kind of longing, that's what we want, to be in charge, to make the, to heal the earth. You know, we don't want to be causing trouble on the streets. That's not really what we want. We want to be planting trees and making things better again. I, I know sorting out climate change involves more than that but um and it was a beautiful thing actually the police came to try and stop it and the crowd just stood in the way and it happened and of course it got dug up again but the symbolism of that so you could have a a town that just keeps gorilla tree planting over and over again until the message is there or that kind of you know vision holding peace um Mm. that's what excites me and i just really encourage people to to make it their own Mm. Thank you, Gail. I'm, there's, as I mentioned in this conversation, you know, I myself oscillate between uh, despair and and hope and optimism, um, and the work that you've done with Extinction Rebellion and, and just what it ha- is becoming, what I see it becoming, is, to be honest, one of the greatest sources of hope when I look out into the world stage right now for me, and and um, I want to honor you for the part that you had in bringing it to life. Um, and I know that, you know, it is, it is much beyond you now, but it was also, you know, came through you and, um, it's quite clear in, in talking with you, the kind of care and sophistication and, um, just trust, I think that produced this, uh, phenomenon. And, and that makes me even more hopeful and even more of a kind of like uh, uh, believer in, in, its, in its potential. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and, and sharing so transparently about your own perspectives. Oh, you're really welcome. That makes me feel uh, honored and, and delighted and also slightly, you know, no pressure. <laughs> I just really want everybody to feel like this is theirs, you know, because a space has been opened for all those connections that we've been wanting. And uh, the, there are forces trying to pull this thing apart, you know, both within us and without outside of us. So I just like, let's all really, we you know, not just watch this thing, but work, for, you know, work for making it work. But thank you. Thank you. Yeah. 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 And so I encourage everybody who's listening, you know, like, don't be on the sidelines. Don't just listen to this episode. Like, look into it. Even if you're in America, like, I know I saw chapters, I think in LA, at least when I last looked, uh, at least a Facebook group. I don't think it's really kicked off yet in America, but like, it could if you do something. Oh, you know what? Th- th- I think there was about 16 groups in America already. Um, we have a maybe we can put it in the in the thing afterwards, Daniel. But there's an email address people can write to for the international team that are helping groups get off the ground internationally. Um, so yeah, perfect. Um, we're working with the climate mobilisation. Um, they're supporting us to to help build that both internationally and and, and in the uh, in the US in particular. Great, wonderful. Yeah, we'll include that in the show notes and. Um... Great. Any, anything you'd like to say as parting words before we close down this particular conversation? I was going to finish telling you the funny story from the Lambeth Bridge, which, which was just that, so everybody left the bridges eventually because that was the end of the day and we're going to Parliament Square, but apparently there was some hardcore group of people that, despite the fact that the police had given up, still just wanted to hold the bridge, stay in their lock and tubes and refuse to move. And the police... I didn't have the capacity to arrest them all, as I said. So they apparently were begging them to move. They were like, please, come on, we just need to get home. What can we do? What, can, what, what does it take to get you to move? And eventually, apparently, and this is no, this is factual, somebody piped up, I really could murder a gin and tonic. And the police officer took him to a bar and bought him a gin and tonic. 
<laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I'm just praying. It's beautiful, isn't it? I'm just really, pre- I, I, there's, a, there's a lot of concern about, you know, the police could turn on us and certainly they have on activists and, and it's not an easy ride for people of colour with the police, to say the least, you know, uh, to say the least. So I don't want to sound naive, but I just pray that um, it would be a beautiful thing if it could be a movement that, that stays with fun stories like that. Let's, let's hope and see. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that's when these social movements really tip the scales um, is when the relationship to the security forces changes. And I think given the context, right, uh, I imagine that this is more likely to tip those scales than anything I've ever seen in my lifetime, right? That this is something that includes all of us. And I think there's, uh, it would be somebody who had to be pretty insensitive, or I won't say that, uh, it will be harder and harder to have your head in the sand uh, when it comes to these issues. And so I think the arc of history is on, on this side of, uh, of this work. So um, again, thank you, Gail. Thank Um, you. Thank you.